A man bored with his lady sits awake in bed reading the Lonely Hearts column of a newspaper in a search for adventure. Soon a quixotic smile spreads across his face as he reads, If you like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain, if you're not into yoga, if you have half a brain, if you like making love at midnight in the dunes of the Cape, then I'm the love you've looked for. Write to me and escape. Without a thought of his lady, the man composes his own personal ad in response to this kindred spirit. Yes, I like pina coladas and getting caught in the rain. I'm not much into health food. I am into champagne. I've got to meet you by tomorrow at noon and cut through all this red tape at a bar called O'Malley's where we'll plan our escape. And so the next day, the man went to the pub and began counting the minutes until noon. And this is how he recounts his experience. So I waited with high hopes, and she walked in the place. I knew her smile in an instant. I knew the curve of her face. It was my own lovely lady, and she said, Ah, it's you. Then we laughed for a moment and said, I never knew. The amusing irony of Rupert Holmes' song is that both the man and his lady are searching for someone else through personal ads, and in their search for someone else, they end up with one another. You see, personal ads, they tell us about the person that they're describing. They give a description, but they can't really be understood until there is an actual meeting of the person's. And so a personal ad is only fully understood once we come into contact with its author. And so the man from the Pina Colada song doesn't realize that it's his lady that's being described, and he goes to meet her at O'Malley's. Friends, this is the way that the Bible works. See, the Old Testament is like a personal ad for Jesus. It describes Jesus. It tells us about him. It gives us an idea of what he's like. And then in the New Testament, he shows up and we meet him. And everything else makes sense. Jesus taught this himself, that all the scriptures were about him on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. This is what happens there, starting in verse 25. And Jesus said to them, this is two of the disciples, O foolish ones! and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We cannot fully understand Exodus or any other part of scripture until we've seen how that part of scripture tells us about Jesus he is the point. And so my hope is that as we work through Exodus together, that we will have this kind of in the air, 10,000 feet above the ground thing going on. Where we're able to see all of the Bible, see how all the stories connect to tell one really big story, which is ultimately about Jesus. And what we, we want to do at the same time is climb inside the text and get familiar with the details. And so to say it a different way, we want to see both the forest and the trees together. What I want you to know this morning, as last week, is that God is present and at work. He has been present and at work in these first few chapters. And the main idea this morning, that which I want you to remember, 
is that God hears and rescues his people. God hears and rescues his people. We're going to look at this portion of scripture in three parts. The covenant, the ark, and the exile. Let's pray together and get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to come together in your house uh, around a table and have the meal of your word. Help us to enjoy this great feast that should nourish our bodies and bring us joy. Father, help us to hear your voice. Help us to listen and obey as an expression of our love for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you want to drop down to the last few verses, verses 23 through 25, we're going to talk about the covenant. And and these verses serve as a summary statement of everything that comes before. So everything that's happened in the first two chapters of Exodus, these verses capture for us. And so if we just wanted to read them like a Spark Notes version, we would have the meaning of, of the first couple chapters. This is what they say. After a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned because of their difficult labor, and they cried out. And their cry for help ascended to God because of their difficult labor. So God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God saw the Israelites, and he took notice. God knew. God acknowledged his people. And first things first, we have to make sure we understand what a covenant is. And typically, when we talk about a covenant, we summarize it as a promise. But as we think about covenant together this morning and throughout Exodus, I would like us to use a a fuller definition that comes from Sally Lloyd-Jones, the Jesus Storybook Bible. This is how she defines a covenant. She says, a covenant is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. And so the whole Bible revolves around God's promise to never stop loving and never stop caring for his people. God will keep his promise. Even that first promise made all the way back in Genesis 3.15, that the seed of the woman would save, that he would crush the head of evil. God is working to fulfill his promises. And this is the first time that the word covenant shows up in Exodus. It's in Genesis some 25-odd times, and it starts in Genesis 3 there. And as we pointed out last week, it comes up in Genesis 12 when God promises to make Abraham a blessing to all nations and to make his descendants like the stars in the sky. It's this really great promise. But this word should also remind us of a dark prophecy that comes from the mouth of God to Abraham in Genesis 15. It's easy to miss this. Uh, You know, I've read Genesis a bunch of times, and and somehow I skipped over this, and so it was refreshing and uh, good for me to look back this week. But in Genesis 15, starting at verse 12, this is what happens. We read, As the sun was setting, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. And I think this is why the terror and the darkness comes upon Abraham, because the prophecy is dark. And the Lord said to Abram, Know this for certain. Your offspring will be foreigners in a land that they do not belong to, in a land that does not belong to them. They will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. 
However, I will judge the nation they serve. And afterwards, they will go out with many possessions. Now, couple that with the verses we just read. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant promise with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Israelites. He took notice. And we are being signaled to the fact that God is fulfilling this prophecy he made to Abraham. His people are enslaved in a land that does not belong to them. They're enslaved by the Egyptians, and God has been faithful to that other part of the promise in verse 12, right? They have increased and multiplied despite Pharaoh's attempts to thwart that, right? He put them into slavery, gave them hard labor, but they increased the more they were oppressed. He tried to kill their sons in secret through the midwives, but the midwives defied that order, and Israel increased. And now, in verse 22, he's getting ready to say, I want to oppress you more. We're just going to cast the Egyptians. We're just going to cast all of your sons into the Nile. But still God is flourishing his people. He has flipped what Pharaoh intended for evil for good twice, and he's going to do it a third time in our text this morning. God keeps his promises. He will deliver his people. And it's important to know the word remember here, it's not like God forgot, okay? God doesn't forget. To be omniscient is to know all things at all times. Right? He, he didn't forget about this promise he made. It, the sense is more an application of the covenant versus a recollection of it. And so it's to kind of say God is going to honor a particular part of the covenant at this time, which is the deliverance of his people. He knows their sufferings. He hears his people, and he will rescue them. And he will do so by continuing to use what Pharaoh intends for evil, for good. And that's the stage on to which we step in verse 1, where we read, Now a man from the family of Levi married a Levite woman. That's an important detail later on, because the tribe of Levi is going to be the tribe that serves as high priests to God, as mediators. And so Moses is later on going to be qualified to be this great mediator between God and man. He's a full Levite. We continue. The woman became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was beautiful or a fine child, a healthy child, she hid him for three months. But when she could no longer hide him, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with asphalt and pitch. She placed the child in it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. Then his sister stood at a distance in order to see what would happen to him. So Egypt, you've heard of China's like one child only policy. The Egypt has a no male child policy, all right? Girls only policy. And it is in full swing. And so what's happening is people are, I imagine it's more than just Moses' parents, right? You uh, conceive a child and you give birth to a child. You don't just right away, if there's any other way, just cast that kid into the Nile River and get rid of him. No, they are probably not the only ones hiding their children. And so they've secreted Moses away for three months they've done this. And then the text tells us it, it becomes, they can't hide him anymore. And it's my thought that this means they can't conceal him in their home anymore. And, and let me tell you what I mean by that is that they take this basket, and you'll notice it's on the bank of the Nile among the reeds, and so it's not floating down the way. And then his sister stands not too far off and watches it, which indicates to me two things, that she's not old enough to have work that she has to do right now, and that she's young enough that people won't be weirded out that she's kind of in the same area all day. 
I think that this is a continuation of the hiding and concealment of Moses. That they're, they've technically cast him into the Nile, if you will, but he's in a basket. And so they draw him out again to care for him when he cries and to hide him away. Um, this position is that of, of Douglas Stewart, and I think he does well when he comments and says, the reeds along the Nile were the best place to hide something outdoors in Egypt without burying it and would allow for Moses to be watched and easily retrieved for nursing and playing when no Egyptians poli- Egyptian police or soldiers were around. This would also serve as a place that his mother could bring him quickly should he cry in order to muffle his cries by the basket, the thickness of the reeds, the general outdoor noises, and the nearby sound of the Nile's waters. That's not the only position out there. In fact, uh, I think that you're probably more familiar with the other position that suggests Moses' parents have said, we've hit him as long as we can, and so now we're going to do what we have to and put him in the Nile, but we're at least going to give him this basket to try and keep, try and keep him safe. And so uh, commentators explain this idea as like, kind of like a desperate mother that leaves her kid on the, the stoop of an orphanage or, or of a church. Right? They abandon him and leave him there with hopes that the best will come. I'm not sure which it is for sure. Uh, I think either of those positions is fine. But one thing that's important to point out is what Hebrews tells us in chapter 11. This is really awesome. This is what the author of Hebrews tells us. It says, By faith, after Moses was born, he was hidden by his parents for three months because they saw that the child was beautiful and they did not fear the king's edict. This leads me to believe that they are acting in faith regardless of what's going on. So even if they uh, left him there, or even if they were concealing him, as I have suggested, their action is an action of faith, and they believe that God is going to do something in the life of this child. And he does. It's also really important to recognize that they placed him in an ark. Now some of you are probably going to look at me sideways and go, what do you mean they placed him in an ark? It says basket. And most all the English translations say they placed him in a basket. And and that's just to help us understand what was going on with Moses. But but the Hebrew word here is actually important. It is the word tabah. And it provides us with a clear theological connection to Noah. Because you see, this word is only used one other place in the Pentateuch, around Noah and his ark. And so what the author wants us to do is to recognize two things, that this child is important, and he's a type of Noah. He's a type of Noah. And, and they are similar in many ways. Peter Enns points out, both Noah and Moses are specifically selected to forego a tragic, watery fate. Both are placed on an ark and carried to safety on the very body of water that brings destruction to others. Both are the vehicles through whom God creates a new people for his own purposes. I think even more, both Noah and Moses give us a picture of Jesus. They serve as Jesus' personal ad, if you will. In the story of Noah, God saves the family of Noah for the sake of Noah. Genesis describes Noah as one who is blameless in his generation, one who walked with God. And so instead of getting what they deserve, Noah's family shares in his life on the ark. Likewise, God saves those who belong to Jesus for the sake of Jesus. 2 Corinthians describes Jesus as he that knew no sin. And Jesus describes himself as one with the Father. It is for Jesus' sake that we who are made into his family by faith are saved from God's judgment. 
instead of getting what we deserve, we get to share in the life of Christ. In the story of Moses, Pharaoh commands that all the sons should be cast into the Nile and killed. He hopes to drown the future of the Hebrews. But instead what happens is he breathes life into it. Likewise, Herod's command in Matthew 2 is supposed to put to death any hope of a Jewish king, but instead serves to authenticate the truth of his arrival and verify his identity. It's through an ark on the Nile that God brings Moses into Pharaoh's house and preserves his life. You see, God loves this pattern of turning places of death into places of life. It happens in Jesus' life too. Pilate's sentence of death is supposed to crucify and bury the kingdom of God, but instead it firmly establishes it. For it is through the cross that God brings us into his kingdom as sons and daughters and preserves our lives eternally. See, God has turned Jesus' tomb from a place of death into a place of life by raising him from the dead. And as he was raised, so too shall we who have faith in him also be raised. And in the same way that Moses' life and Noah's life pointed ahead to Jesus' life, they gave a description of what Jesus is like, so too should our lives. We should be those that are willing to sacrifice for our neighbor. We should be those that when the world looks upon us, they see us as the most loving and caring. They should see Christ in us. And we do different things in our church to symbolize God's great victory over death and how he brings life from death. We do it in baptism, right? Paul describes it this way in Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. And so this newness of life in which we walk, well, it's our part in the Christological personal ad. We represent Jesus. Our lives should describe what Jesus is like to the world and to one another. Paul also comments on it this way. He says, we, that's anyone who's in Christ, are ambassadors for Christ, certain that God is appealing through us. We plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God desires to take men and women who are dead in their sins, men and women who have dead hearts, and to make them alive with Christ. He desires to save you from your sin. He desires to take you out of the world, out of being enslaved to your passions and your pleasures, and put you into his church, his body, so that you might experience his fullness therein and be joined with him on his great mission of making his name great throughout all the world. Moses found safe passage through the Nile in an ark. Noah found safety from God's judgment on the world in his ark. I wonder if you will find yourself safe from God's judgment in God's own ark. The man Jesus Christ, who has gone under the waters of judgment for you, so that you might live, so that you don't have to go under them. 
This word ark in verse 3, I said, also points us to the significance of the child, and Moses is going to be a significant figure as we know. It is this child who floats atop the waters meant to kill him while his sister watches from a distance. And as we continue to read, we discover that this child falls into the worst-case scenario for his life. He is discovered by an Egyptian. Look at verse 5. Pharaoh's daughter went down to bathe at the Nile while her servant girls walked along the riverbank. Seeing the basket among the reeds, she sent her slave girl to get it. When she opened it, she saw the child, a little boy, crying. She felt sorry for him and said, This is one of the Hebrew boys. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Should I go and call a woman from among the Hebrews to nurse the boy? This is where the narrative turns. It's crazy. Pharaoh's daughter told her, Go. So the girl went and called the boy's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child and nurse him for me, and I will pay you wages. So the woman took the boy and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is amazing. That which is supposed to bring about Moses' death puts him in a palace. What should have been the worst-case scenario for his life being discovered by an Egyptian works out to be one of the best things that ever happened to him. I mean, look at how God works these circumstances together. He is discovered by an Egyptian, one who should want to kill him. But instead, she's filled with compassion. Not only that, but he is allowed to nurse at his own mother's breast. Not only that, but Pharaoh's daughter is going to pay his mom to nurse him. This is pretty awesome. This is the kindness of God. This is the providential care of God for his people. True, it would be difficult to send Moses to the palace when he was older, likely around three or four years of age. But could his parents be anything other than thrilled? I mean, their boy would live. Not as a slave either. As royalty. One of the things I couldn't help but think about as I meditated on this part of the passage this week is that sometimes it feels as if life is falling apart around us. And it's in those moments that God's mysterious providence is, is taking place. He has a secret protective care for his people. And, and it's, it's nothing that we can ever step outside of. All of life's situations ultimately bend their knee before our sovereign king who is working for our good. So if you're struggling with physical decline or emotional turmoil, insecurity, financial issues, loss of a loved one, whatever it is. Then we can remember, as we said last week, that God is present and at work, that our sufferings are not wasted. Love Psalm 58 tells us that he collects our tears in a bottle. This is the God who hears his people. He knows your suffering. He's entered into it himself. And he's working your sufferings together to give you a particular glory when you are with him in heaven. 
me, nothing, no situation is impossible to face when Jesus Christ is the true and deep treasure of your heart. Now, I know not all of life's situations, we all ultimately, typically, don't know all the reasons that things happen. Sometimes we don't know any of the reasons. But if we have a God that's powerful, that we can get mad at because he's powerful enough to stop evil, I think it's also true that we have a God who's powerful enough to have good reasons for allowing evil to exist and persist. And we should trust those reasons. I mean, trying to understand the ways of God, it's akin to a six-year-old trying to understand the calculations of a world-famous mathematician. Right? We're just not going to be able to do it, to see it from all the angles. But what we are called to do is to trust him and to know that he cares for us, even in the midst of loss, even in the most desperate and trying times. Pharaoh means to kill any hope of deliverance, but instead, Israel's hope will eat at his own table in his own house. We read in verse 11. Years later, after Moses had grown up, he went out to his own people and observed their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Looking all around and seeing no one, he struck the Egyptian dead and hid him in the sand. The next day he went out and saw two Hebrews fighting. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you attacking your neighbor? Who made you leader and judge over us? The man replied. Are you planning to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses became afraid and thought, What I did is certainly known. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the, in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Years have passed since Moses was a baby on the ark, but still he thinks of himself as a Hebrew. And as the Hebrews, and he thinks of the Hebrews as his brothers and sisters instead of slaves. And seeing one of his brothers unjustly beaten, he is filled with a rage that leads him to murder. He kills the Egyptian and he hides his body. I think the fact that the text tells us he, he looks this way and that, makes sure nobody's watching him, then he kills the guy, and then he gets rid of the body in the sand. Uh, maybe there are better ways to get rid of a body. Uh, I don't know. I've watched a lot of cop shows. Burying him in the sand is not the most creative. At any rate, that's how he chooses to dispose of the body. I think that these point to his guilt. But I, I would be remiss if I didn't give you other positions on this. Uh, others argue that Moses is innocent of murder here uh, because he's acting as kind of an instrument of divine retribution. Uh, let me read you what Peter N. says. Moses' response to the beating of the Hebrew slave foreshadows the unjust treatment of the Israelites by Pharaoh's Egyptian slave drivers and their subsequent deliverance. Hence, in light of the context of these verses, Moses' actions here should not be interpreted as an act of vengeance or rash zeal, but as a proleptic execution of divine justice against Egypt. And so what Enz is saying is that Moses, even though he might not be fully aware of his role as a deliverer just yet, e even in this action, is being faithful because he's anticipating his action later where God will uh, punish the Egyptians for enslaving the Israelites unjustly. I I'm not a buyer on that, and I think what Philip Ryken said was, was very helpful. He writes this, One way or another, an expert legal team could have come up with a winning strategy for Moses' defense. Indeed, many Christian commentators from Tertullian to Aquinas have sought to clear Moses from the charge of murder. 
but that does not change the fact that what he did was wrong. It was wrong because it was unnecessary. Moses could have protected the slave without resorting to killing. And it was also wrong because it was not Moses' place to do this. This was an abuse of power. It's not Moses' impulse to save Israel that's wrong, but the action that he takes. I actually think that whether his uh, action, whether, whether Moses' murder was vengeful or it was this him standing up on behalf of the weak and the oppressed, I actually don't think it's all that important. So I think the primary point, what we're supposed to learn right here, is that Moses is not any kind of deliverer. He is it's putting on displays inability to deliver even one person by himself on his own, let alone a whole nation. I mean, Moses is not the powerful figure that we typically think of, right? I think when you think of Moses, you think of the raising of the staff and the parting of the Red Sea and all these wonders and things that are going on in Exodus. But he, he is not that man here. In fact, he'll tell us as much in, in, in the next chapter. God's going to say, hey, this is what I want you to do. And Moses is going to go, not me. That's not, I'm not a deliverer. Moses is not any kind of deliverer. In fact, he can't even get, you, get a, a thank you from the slave that he saved from a beating. It's my belief that the slave that uh, says, who are you that you think you're Lord and judge over us is the one that was being beaten, uh, that he would have been the only one that witnessed the murder and then subsequently told other people. At any rate, he does not look anything like a mighty deliverer, but God is going to make him just that. God is going to make Moses a prototypical deliverer. He's going to play the part, and I think part of this is because God loves irony, right? He loves to bring life from death. He loves to use those that are deemed weak and unable and unimpressive, loves to use the forgotten and the feeble and the lowly to show off his power. He's told us this explicitly, that my grace is sufficient for you and that my strength is made perfect in weakness. Friends, those that inherit the kingdom of God and see God's strength perfected in them are those who humble themselves and receive his grace and forgiveness. I wonder if you ever considered that God wants to use you, just like he wanted to use Moses. You might feel ill-equipped or incapable or feeble, but God wants to make himself look wonderful because he is wonderful. He wants to perfect his strength in you and he wants to put it on display. He can use you to reach your neighbor. He can use you to care for the fatherless and the orphan and sojourn and the widow. Have you submitted yourself to him that he might do a great work in you? An investigation leads the Pharaoh to condemn Moses, and so he finds himself forced into exile and sitting by a well. It's at this point that we see Moses animated by justice one more time, and he is sitting by the well, and it seems that some shepherds that are fairly mean, I guess, and fairly routinely are mean to the girls of Jethro or Ruel, the same guy, uh, they typically drive them off and keep them from feed or watering their flock. But Moses is there this time, and he chases them away. This time he doesn't kill anybody, but he, he delivers the girls in a way. He's their knight in shining armor. He waters their cattle for them. And then they go home, and they're home early, and Jethro or Ruel, however, whoever, whichever name you want to use, says to them, hey, you're home early. What happened? And they, they tell him the story, and he says, well, have you forgotten your manners? Why didn't you ask this guy to come to dinner? 
And so they go back out and they get Moses. Moses comes to dinner. And long story short, he ends up part of the family. He marries a woman named Sipporah. And Sipporah, you'll notice her name is mentioned twice, and I don't think that's by accident. I think it's to emphasize the crucial role. She's another woman that will play a vital role in Moses' life. Right, the Hebrew midwives preserved infants. Then we saw uh, Moses' mother preserve his life. Then his sister preserved his life. And then Pharaoh's daughter preserved his life. And Sipporah later on is going to preserve the life of Moses. And so she's going to have an active role to play. And so I think that we're being tipped off to that. But we're also being tipped off to the fact that Moses is marrying a non-Israelite. And, and I thought this is one of the things that jumped out to me is that I think what we popularly believe is that Israel is this great monolith, that they're all Jewish in the Old Testament. But that's not true. In the Old Testament, as in the New, those that make up Israel are those of faith. There are more people that belong to the nation of Israel throughout the Old Testament than just Jewish people. And Sipporah is one of them. And it's through Sipporah that Moses is given a son whom he names Gershom. For he said, this is verse 22, I have been a foreigner in a foreign land. This name, Gershom, is kind of a commentary on Moses' circumstances. It means to drive out or to expel if we translate it literally. But in the Hebrew, this is also a pun because they love puns in their literature. And if we read it as a pun, it means an alien there. Either way, his name, the name of his son is a constant reminder of his banishment from Egypt. See, from, from Moses' point of view, he is now permanently separated both from what he regarded as his homeland, Egypt, and from the people he now identified with as his own, Israel. Kiel and Delich comment, In a strange land he was obliged to live, far away from his brethren in Egypt and far from his father's land of promise. It's also important to note that the naming of his son Gershom well, this is the third time that we have been tipped off that Moses is identifying with the Hebrews, right? In verse 11, he goes out to see his people or his brothers, and then he sees one of his people or one of his brothers being beaten. Then, secondly, in anger or in response to one of his brothers being beaten, he kills a man. He's identifying with Israel rather than Egypt. Even though uh, the daughters of Jethro finger him as an Egyptian, they see they say an Egyptian chased away people, he doesn't think of himself that way. He gives his son a name that means I'm living in exile. The foreigner in a foreign land. The point here, what I think we're supposed to see, is that Moses could have easily remained a prince of Egypt and lived a very good life. I mean, he could have even devised a plan to help the Hebrews from his position of power. as a prince. But instead, he left Egypt. Hebrews 11.24 says it this way. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called a son of Pharaoh's daughter and chose to suffer with the people of God rather than to enjoy the short-lived pleasures of sin. For he considered the reproach because of the Messiah to be greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt since his attention was on the reward. That's a pretty big verse. Instead of indulging in the privileges of Egypt, including the privileges that would come with being a prince, Moses identifies with God's people and thus, by faith, is seeking God's promised Messiah, God's eternal reward. 
Moses chooses to identify with God's people because he believes the promise of God. I, I don't know how much he knew in particular about the God of Israel, but what Hebrews tells me is that he knows enough to put his faith in God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. God, or Moses trusts God. I think once more we see the personal ad of Christ in the life of Moses. Moses leaves a palace in Egypt to suffer with the people of God and lead them out of Egypt and into God's presence as worshipers. Likewise, Jesus steps out of heaven to suffer on behalf of the people of God and lead them out of slavery to sin and into God's presence as worshipers. For it is clear that he, Jesus, Hebrews tells us, does not reach out to help angels, but to help Abraham's offspring. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make a propitiation or satisfaction for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tested or tempted and has suffered, he is able to help those who are tested or tempted. Friends, Jesus identifies with us so that we can identify with him. He serves as our substitute on the cross, identifies as our sin and takes our punishment, what we deserve, so that we can identify with him and share in his resurrection life and get everything that he deserves. This is the gospel. You don't get what you deserve. You get grace. You get Christ. He died for you. I wonder, will you continue to identify with your sin? Or will you identify with Jesus and his church? and experience the fullness of life that exists therein. I love it at the end of Ephesians 1 there, uh, Paul tells us that we experience the fullness of Christ in his body, in the church. And so that somehow our experience of Jesus is increased when we are faithful to live in community with one another. I wonder, are you willing to identify with God's people? Or do you fear it will cost you too much? Are you willing to follow Jesus? Or will you go away sad like the rich young ruler, worshiping instead other things? God delivered Israel through Moses, his prophet, and he has delivered all who trust in Jesus, his son, from the penalty of sin. You see, friends, God hears and rescues his people. He's heard your pain. He's heard your cries. He's heard your dissatisfaction. And he's provided you with a rescuer. The question is, will you reject him saying something like, who has made you a leader and a prince and a judge over me? This is my life. Or will you stop following your heart and begin following that sweet Galilean accent of our Savior? Friends, I I don't know if Jesus enjoys pina coladas or, or getting caught in the rain. But I do know this, that he is the love you've always looked for and that you should come to him and escape. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that your word is so rich and full of meaning. We thank you that 
the promise that undergirds each and every text of Scripture is your promise to save us, to rescue from the penalty of our wrong actions. Father, we thank you that you have heard our cries and sent a Redeemer who saves us eternally. Father, this is an astounding promise. Father, we pray that you would help us to have grateful hearts, joyful hearts, and that we would respond to this good news with faith. Increase our affections for you. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.